Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Bellinger looks back to the Black Panther trials, which shone national attention on New Haven 50 years ago. Coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. When I set out to do a podcast episode for Grading the Nutmeg about the New Haven Black Panther trials, I didn't realize what I was getting into. It made perfect sense to take a look back at the trials now. Exactly 50 years ago, Erica Huggins and Bobby Seale were on trial for their lives after the murder of Alex Rackley, a fellow Black Panther and suspected FBI informant. And this topic is timely in more ways than one. A look back at America at the beginning of the 1970s is disconcertingly like looking at America at the beginning of the 2020s. I didn't live through that time of social strife and polarization 50 years ago, but given the events of 2020, I think I have a little better understanding of what it must have been like. Still, trying to reconstruct the mindset of that time is difficult. It was, to put it mildly, a complicated time. I've spent half my life working in the history field, and I still struggle against the impulse to look for good guys and bad guys, right and wrong, role models and villains, and stories from the past. But this story doesn't have that. What do we find when we look at the story of the Black Panthers in New Haven? We have passion, principle, moral conviction, a genuine desire to help the poor and dispossessed. We also have paranoia, anger, and fear, and we have a murder. There are many, many excellent resources out there if you want to learn more about the Black Panther trials and about the Black Panther movement. In a way, that made putting this episode together a lot harder. Synthesizing and distilling so much information isn't easy. No 20, 25-minute podcast episode is going to do it justice. I'm going to give you an overview of the events that brought national attention to New Haven starting in 1969, and along the way, I'll point you to places where you can explore the topic more yourself using primary sources, some of them easily accessible online. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to these sources. Where to start our story? We can go back to Oakland, California in 1966, when two college students, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, formed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. They intended to draw their members from inner city youths who disproportionately felt the effects of police brutality and racism. These were people who felt that the broader civil rights movement, which had targeted legal segregation in the South, was leaving them behind. The Panthers established a 10-point program demanding full employment, decent housing, and an end to police brutality. To protect against police brutality, they called for Blacks to be armed. The Black Panther Party called for release of all Black prisoners because they could not get fair trials in the United States. They called for an exemption from military service for Blacks because they should not be forced to protect a government that did not protect them. Above all, they called for Blacks to, quote, have the power to control the destiny of our own community, end quote. The fact that Stokely Carmichael, the former leader of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, joined the Black Panthers in 1968 is symbolic of the shift in the civil rights movement. Carmichael had been a freedom writer in the early 60s and took over leadership of SNCC from future Congressman John Lewis. But he'd become disillusioned with the two-party system and with nonviolence as an ideology. In 1966, he supported SNCC's push to banish white members. 
Carmichael, along with Malcolm X, as well as Newton and Seale, rejected a version of civil rights that saw Blacks integrated into existing political and economic structures. True justice would come only when the deep-seated races of American institutions were recognized and those institutions were destroyed and rebuilt. What was needed was not reform, but revolution. The Connecticut Historical Society recently acquired a run of the Black Panther newspaper, the Black Panther Community News Service. It's easy to get lost paging through them, and I did. The newspaper, which sold hundreds of thousands of weekly copies in its heyday, reveal a movement fighting wars on multiple fronts. Articles document incidences of police brutality and the murder of black civilians and the incarceration of black men on trumped up charges. They promote the Black Panthers as the protectors of black bodies and black freedom and tout their successful community service projects, such as providing free breakfast to school children of all races. In one case, an article celebrating the beginning of a free medical clinic in New Haven sits alongside an article celebrating the killing of a police officer in Los Angeles. Throughout the Panthers' early years, there would be tension within the movement about where to focus the movement's energy, on community service or on violent revolution. There's also plenty of evidence in these newspapers of a movement at war with itself. Coupled with anti-government screeds are denunciations of former Panthers who had been thrown out of the party for infractions of the rules, which were printed in every edition. What were the rules for being a member of the Black Panthers? Well, you couldn't drink or smoke marijuana on party time, and possession of narcotics was cause for expulsion. Party leaders were expected to do at least two hours per day of reading to, quote, keep abreast of the changing political situation, end quote. All members were expected to be fully educated in party philosophy and in operating firearms. They needed to be aware of their legal rights in case of arrest. One significant rule forbids local chapters from taking government money to fund their community programs, an attitude that makes the Black Panthers stand out from many other civil rights groups and a sign of their refusal to be co-opted into non-revolutionary reform. Those who broke the rules were subject to expulsion and violent denunciation in the party newspaper. Even though the party rules forbade violence against fellow Panthers and Black people in general, it was commonly used against those suspected of breaking with the party line, or worse, of being a government informant, as the Alex Rackley case would demonstrate. Like many leftist organizations, the Black Panther Party struggled with keeping their principles and tactics coherent as they grew from a local to a national group. The New Haven chapter was founded just as membership peaked in early 1969, as the organization was in the midst of purging individuals and local chapters that weren't cooperating with the national leadership. Add to this fact that the founders of the party, Newton and Seal, spent most of the late 1960s incarcerated, Newton for a murder conviction and Seal as part of the Chicago 8. And you have a movement that was driven by passion and purpose, but was rent by leadership troubles and infighting. The infighting didn't stem only from internal conflicts. Local police departments and the FBI actively cultivated distrust and paranoia among the Black Panther Party. By 1969, the party was rife with FBI informants. This was part of the counterintelligence program called COINTELPRO to infiltrate leftist movements. J. Edgar Hoover, who identified the Black Panther Party as the most dangerous domestic threat facing America, directed in a memo to regional offices that, quote, Vulnerabilities of the Black Panthers should be the subject of hard-hitting, imaginative counterintelligence proposals, which will render this Black extremist organization ineffectual, end quote. The Black Panther Party leadership tried to turn the organization's focus toward community programs and away from internecine fighting and violence, but to little avail. This brings our story to New Haven. The Black Panther chapter there was founded in early 1969, 
in a city that had already experienced black militarism and police harassment. New Haven was lauded as a model city for civil rights in the 1950s and early 60s. But as historian Yohuru Williams has shown, what gains were made disproportionately benefited middle and upper class African-Americans. The black population of New Haven boomed post-war, but city programs didn't really address the needs of these newcomers, and they didn't include the black community as equal partners in finding solutions to urban problems. In 1965, the Hill Parents Association formed over conditions at the Prince Street Elementary School. The Hill Parents Association, or HPA, differed from other civil rights groups at work in New Haven. Unlike the NAACP or CORE, it was entirely local and oriented less toward politics than concrete community-generated solutions for specific problems. After a riot that devastated the city in 1967, sparked by the shooting of a Latino youth by a white store owner, the city police began to harass the HPA using both informants and electronic surveillance. What happened in New Haven happened throughout the country. Black militant groups became a primary target of law enforcement. So when the Black Panthers first appeared in New Haven in 1969, the stage was set for confrontation. Bridgeport was actually the first city in Connecticut to have a Black Panthers chapter. But the arrival of Erica Huggins in New Haven in January of 1969 shifted the focus of the party to the Elm City. Huggins was just 21 years old, a new mother, and she'd come to New Haven to bury her husband, John, who had been murdered by a rival Black militant group in California. She stayed to organize the Panthers in New Haven. The party took up where the HPA had left off, providing community services, notably a free breakfast program for kids, legal aid, and a community health clinic. This, coupled with their revolutionary rhetoric, attracted a lot of support for the Black Panther Party in the Black community while frightening law enforcement and City Hall. The police immediately began to illegally surveil the Black Panthers. The Black Panther Party arranged for Chairman Bobby Seale to speak at Yale on May 19, 1969. They had no idea what was coming. The internal disorganization, factional infighting, and police targeting was about to explode in an event that would put New Haven into national focus. On May 17, 1969, George Sams and Alex Rackley arrived in New Haven. Sams had been knocking around New York City, claiming to be a security enforcer from national headquarters. Sams had openly violated party rules and was violent toward other party members in New York City. Bobby Seale would later testify that Sams had been expelled from the party in Oakland, but when he arrived in New York, his credentials were never questioned, a sign of party disorganization. According to historian Yehoah Williams, Sam's behavior was so atypical for the party that it suggests that he might have been a police infiltrator turned provocateur. He cites internal FBI memos outlining concern over the use of infiltrators for exactly this reason. Arriving in New Haven, Sam's immediately began throwing his weight around, intimidating other chapter members, and suddenly announcing that his traveling partner, Rackley, was a police informant. For three days, members of the chapter tortured and interrogated Rackley in the home of Warren Kimbrough while Kimbrough's children slept upstairs. Sams ordered Erica Huggins to record the interrogation. Sams made it clear that he was doing this under orders from National. On May 20th, Sams, Warren Kimbrough, and Lonnie McLucas put Rackley in a car and drove him to Middlefield, told him there was a boat waiting to take him back to New York City, and then they killed him. Sams gave Kimbrough a gun and told him that orders from National were to kill Rackley. So Kimbrough shot him in the head, and Sams then ordered McLucas to fire a safety shot to make sure Rackley was dead. They left the body in a marsh where it was discovered the next day. 
Police quickly arrested Kimbrough and several other members of the New Haven chapter. McLucas and Sams were rounded up after fleeing the state. The police knew who to look for because they'd been surveying Kimbrough's house and because the vehicle used to drive Rackley to his death had been borrowed from a police informant. They had attempted, they said, to follow the car, but had lost it. One impression that stands out from this is that while both the militants and law enforcement were pursuing their own visions of justice, both sides failed Alex Rackley. He wasn't an informant, something that the Panthers quickly realized. A total of nine people had been arrested, but law enforcement was really after five people. The three men involved directly in the killing and Erica Huggins and Bobby Seale. Prosecutors wanted to pin the murder on Black Panther Party leadership. Through the rest of 1969 and into 1970, the New Haven defendants became a national cause celeb amongst leftist groups. The Black Panthers announced a three-day fundraising rally on New Haven Green to begin on May 1st, 1970, a move enthusiastically supported by most Yale students. Here are the facts about that rally. It was largely peaceful. 15,000 people attended. The Yale president, Kingman Brewster, in a bid to stave off violence, opened the Yale campus to protesters and provided shelter and food. The Connecticut National Guard was put on alert, but the Pentagon's offer to station 4,000 Marines and paratroopers near New Haven was declined. It was widely seen as a success. National leaders of the left appeared to speak at the rally, including Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, who were Bobby Seale's co-defendants as part of the Chicago 8. But remember at the top of this episode when I said I didn't know what I was getting into when I started on this topic? The May Day rally is a perfect example. When we look back at the past, we want to simplify and make meaning. But what did the May Day rally really mean to those who lived through it? In all my research, I found so many different takes. Was the relative peacefulness a product of police using intelligence gathering to control the demonstrations? Or was the peacefulness due to the crew of Yale students who worked hard throughout the preparations for the rally and then on the day of worked hard to ensure that it stayed peaceful? Was this an instance of largely white middle-class kids using their privilege as Yale students to call attention to an injustice against black militants? Or did the rally draw attention from the real problems of the black community in New Haven as some black New Havenites thought? And we also have to put the events of May Day into their larger context. The day before the rally, President Nixon revealed that the United States had invaded Cambodia. Yale was far from the only campus to have protests that week. Over 700 campuses erupted across the country. The Yale rally became part of a nationwide student strike. Three days later, National Guard troops at Kent State in Ohio would open fire on demonstrators, killing four of them. If you want to see artifacts documenting the May Day rally, the Yale Library has an excellent online exhibit called Bulldog and Panther. You can see photos and posters from the day and magazine and newsletter articles about the trials. You can even read Yale President Kingman Brewster's mail. Before the rally, he'd publicly questioned whether the Black Panthers could get a fair trial in the United States. He got letters of support, but he got hate mail too. A month after the May Day protests in June 1971, the trial of Lonnie McLucas began. George Sams and Warren Kimbrough both turned state's witness in order to receive plea deals. The prosecution tried to prove that McLucas had delivered the second shot under pressure from Sams, who had been ordered to kill Rackley by Bobby Seale. McLucas was ably defended by Theodore and Michael Koskoff, father and son lawyers, who successfully convinced the jury that McLucas had feared for his life if he hadn't gone along. He was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder, the least serious charge, and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Before the May Day rally, 
Yale President Kingman Brewster had publicly questioned whether a Black revolutionary could get a fair trial in the United States. Editorialists pointed to McLucas's case, in which the jury found him sympathetic enough to dismiss the more serious death penalty charges against him, as evidence that this wasn't true. But McLucas had admitted to helping kill Alex Rackley. Bobby Steele and Erica Huggins were a different story. Neither of them had been there that fatal night in Middlefield. How to link them to the murder? Jury selection for their trial began in October 1970 and lasted an unprecedented four months. Again, the Panthers were able to obtain excellent legal counsel for the accused. Seal was represented by Charles Gary, who had defended Huey Newton in a murder trial in Oakland. And Huggins was defended by Catherine Rohrabach, a seasoned Connecticut civil rights attorney. The prosecution's case against Seal was pretty weak. The only witness who claimed that Seal ordered the murder was George Sams, and his integrity was easy to shred. When it came to Huggins, the prosecution had a little more. It had a tape. George Sams had directed Huggins to record the interrogation of Rackley, minus the torture. A copy of the tape surfaced in 2014 after investigative work by Paul Bass of the New Haven Independent. You can listen to it on YouTube. Huggins appears in the beginning, giving a summary of Rackley's short time at the New Haven headquarters. She speaks softly and haltingly. The rest of the 45-minute tape consists of a rambling and sometimes weeping Alex Rackley, questioned by Kimbrough and Sams, tossing out accusations of cooperation with, quote, the pigs against seemingly every panther he's ever met. Huggins's attorney, Rohrabach, successfully convinced the jury that Huggins had been afraid of George Sams and the other men during the interrogation and had not been in control of the situation. There was no concrete evidence linking her to the actual murder. On May 24, 1971, the judge declared a mistrial after the jury reported it was deadlocked. Next day, he dismissed the charges. Judge Harold Mulvey seems to have come around to Kingman Brewster's way of thinking. From the trial transcript, quote, With the massive publicity attendant upon the trial just completed, I find it impossible to believe that an unbiased jury could be selected without superhuman efforts, efforts which this court, the state, and these defendants should not be called upon either to make or to endure. Seal and Huggins were ordered released. Later, it would be found that the jury was in favor of acquittal with just two holdouts in favor of conviction. So what was the legacy of the Black Panther trials? Like everything else in this story, it's complicated. The prosecution of Seal and Huggins brought sympathy on the left. Each of them spent their time in prison in Connecticut exposing abuses against fellow inmates. Donations poured in, and for a time, the New Haven branch was able to expand its social welfare services. But the murder had exposed the internal divisions and disorganizations of the Black Panthers and provided justification for law enforcement to step up their efforts to disrupt the movement. This led to more violence nationwide, which in turn negatively affected the Panthers' reputation. The party countered this by focusing more on community services than revolution, but damage was done. The Black Panther Party would crumble by the early 1980s. This was hardly a win for law and order, though. By 1977, the New Haven Police's illegal wiretapping scheme was exposed in the Hartford Current, leading to an almost $2 million settlement with the victims. This was in the midst of a national reckoning over the federal government's violation of civil rights through the COINTELPRO and other domestic espionage programs. What about for the individuals involved? Bobby Seale left the Black Panthers in 1974 and has worked as a teacher, author, and community activist ever since. Erica Huggins remained with the party until 1981, and she too is now an educator and activist. George Sams has been in and out of prison since serving four years for Rackley's murder. 
Lonnie McLucas's sentence was commuted in 1978. He had a difficult time finding work in Connecticut and moved back to his family home in North Carolina. Warren Kimbrough also served four years of a life sentence, the shortest incarceration for murder in Connecticut state history. He rebuilt his life as a model of rehabilitation. He ran Project More in New Haven, a community support program for former inmates until his death in 2009. McLucas, Kimbrough, and Huggins have all expressed regret for their participation in the torture and death of Alex Rackley. If you wanna learn more about this story, you can come to the Connecticut Historical Society and read through the Black Panthers newspaper. Yale University has the trial transcripts and the only images from inside the courtroom. Their sketches made surreptitiously by Robert Templeton. Both transcripts and sketches are available online. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to more resources about the New Haven Black Panther trials. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Black Panthers in Connecticut, see Yuhuru Williams' essay, The New Haven Black Panther Trials in African-American Connecticut Explored. You'll also find other sources linked in the show notes for this episode. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.